Hello and welcome to the One Football Podcast. Welcome one and all to the revamped, rejigged and rebooted European Tour podcast with me, Dan Burke. Here at OneFootball, we are blessed with a diverse newsroom staffed by football experts from all around the world. And each week on this podcast, I will be attempting to tap into that expertise by talking with a variety of guests about the biggest talking points from the biggest leagues in Europe and occasionally even further afield. Later in the show, I'll be joined by my Italian and Spanish colleagues to talk all things Serie A and La Liga. But first, to reflect on the first Bundesliga match day of 2022, I'm joined by a couple of Germans in Antonio Hennigs. Hi. And Dominic Berger. Hello. So I wanted to start uh, with a little a little fun question for both of you today. Uh, just ask about your, your personal highlight from the, the, the week of German football. What was the, the best, funniest, most interesting or unusual thing that happened for you this week? You can start, Tony. Um, for me, it actually was uh, the substitution of Ricardo Pepe or the whole person Ricardo Pepe. Uh, like the new signing of Augsburg, uh, they paid around 60 million for him, which is crazy because nobody really knows anything about this guy he's 19 and from the states and yeah i think he can be good but you know the hype is like really too much and uh that was like my my moment of the weekend when he got substituted and and every augsburg fan was totally going crazy and uh yeah (laughs) i think he will need his time which is totally normal but yeah that was like the most unusual thing for me yeah, they're very excited about him in the US, I believe. Uh, I think they get excited <laughs> about their players quite a lot, don't they? They were excited about Josh, Josh Sargent once upon a time as well. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Interesting to keep an eye on him. How about you, Dominic? Um, I have to admit that uh, this was one of the uh, funniest things uh, around the last week. But uh, my personal favorite was the, um, let's say, wrestling match between Erling Haaland and Martin Hinteregger in the <laughs> uh, back of the net of the Frankfurt goal. Um, because I like this type of defensive playing and mind games on in the, uh, at the same time and it was uh, for me a big gesture of sportsmanship from Martin Hinteregger afterwards when he just said it's totally fine you know for 90 minutes you have to get at him but then uh, you just shake hands and that was it so that was for yeah. me a perfect scene to describe um what it's uh, like on on the pitch and also afterwards uh, off the pitch. Yeah, it's war out there, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> you, you have to be a brave man to take on Erling Haaland in a wrestling match, I would say. But then maybe maybe the same for Martin Hinteregger. Uh, anyway, let's get into uh, the weekend's action a bit more. I just want to ask you first, Dominic, uh, seven of the nine Bundesliga matches played this weekend were played behind closed doors. How are you feeling about football without fans at this moment in time, this this far into the pandemic? Is it is it starting to, to get you down at this point? Uh, totally, I think. I think it's uh, at the same time hard to understand for people who are not um, that into football because uh, at the same time you can uh, go to a cinema and then uh, watch a movie with uh, 70, 70 hundred uh, other people in the cinema and you don't have to wear masks or um, have mm. so many gaps be- be- uh, between you but then um, at the same time in the uh, Berlin Olympia Stadium you have to uh, you, you have your own row which is a bit of crazy when you have a capacity around <laughs> 70,000 people um, which could fit in the stadium um, but I think on the other hand for some players it's a very good thing uh, especially when I think uh, of one of the Dortmund examples from the weekend uh, Moda Hood who's always a better player I would say 
uh, when the audience are not in the stadium, <laughs> which is a, a bit bit hard for a professional player. But uh, last time he was uh, the best Dortmund player in the Corona season. And right now he shows that he has his qualities. But please, please don't invite um, yeah, <laughs> attendance, <laughs> yeah. I would say. I, I just feel with German football, it's it's... The crowd is so important. I mean, you can watch a Premier League game, you can watch a Liga game, and you don't even notice the crowd being there if you watch on TV a lot of the time. Whereas with German football, it feels like it's more the more involved. It's it's part of the whole package, and it just feels feels like it's not quite the same without them there. Unfortunately, but you know what can you do? We're we're trying our best with this <laughs> uh, with this pandemic, aren't we? Um, let's talk about some some football though. Uh, the weekend began with Bundesliga leaders Bayern Munich suffering a shock defeat at home to Borussia Mönchengladbach on Friday night. Uh, Tony, do you think Bayern? can write that result off because they had some players missing due to COVID and injuries or, or is this the sign that there's a bit bit of weakness there and, and the title race is wide open again? <laughs> I wish <laughs> but uh, there's always a tiny bit of hope when Bayern loses and in this case also Dortmund uh, won but yeah as always they will totally write that result off and the title race is no race <laughs> as it wasn't the years before I'm afraid. Um, I mean, they play Cologne now, and as good as Cologne plays at the moment, Bayern will probably kick them out of the stadium. <laughs> um, I'm really sorry for them, but I guess most of uh, most of the players, at least those who were missing because of COVID, um, are back. So, yeah, it's going to be the Bayern we know again. <laughs> <laughs> How's everyone feeling about the prospects of a, of a 10th consecutive title for Bayern? Because, you know, in, in England, people look to the Bundesliga and say, well, we don't want our league to become like that, where it's dominated by one team. You know, Juventus had that big run in Serie A recently. PSG are pretty dominant in, in Liga. Is, is it a problem for, for the Bundesliga that Bayern are, are potentially going to win 10 titles in a row? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, well, it, it makes it more unattractive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mark my words, after uh, Friday night when Dortmund will uh, win against Freiburg, uh, we have a very, very close title race just for <laughs> that night because then it, it will be just three points. <laughs> there you go, there you go. I mean, it's... That seems pretty pretty back on to me, but uh, we'll we'll see how that goes. <laughs> uh, no coach has beaten Julian Nagelsmann more times in the Bundesliga than Gladbach coach Adi Hütter. Does that suggest he's Nagelsmann's kryptonite, Dominic? Uh, it's a really fascinating stats. Uh, I uh, looked up the nine games they played against each other, and uh, Hütter right now has the best record of all German coaches in uh, of all coaches in Germany. Sorry. And uh, he has five wins, and I uh, looked up the several games, and I think the the main reason that Hütter shows that he's a good coach is that he did it with two teams. He did it with Frankfurt um, back then, and right now with Gladbach. And um, in these nine, nine games, he used five different tactical formations, <laughs> which is somehow like, yeah, yeah no, uh, go on, Julian, but... Uh, <laughs> I will have a solution against you. <laughs> and what uh, very special is for me that uh, Hütte is right now uh, unbeaten against uh, Bayern Munich with Gladbach. I mean, obviously uh, Gladbach uh, would uh, change this against maybe a better position at the t- in the table right now. But this is somehow a fascinating fact, I think. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, we, we sing in England, can we play you every week? And maybe that would be, uh, Gladbach would like to play Bayern every week, wouldn't they? That'd be, that'd be quite helpful. Exactly. Well, Frankfurt would do it and too. Another... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, well, this was actually Gladbach's first win in six matches. That included 4-1 defeats to Cologne and Leipzig and that 6-0 defeat to Freiburg. How much pressure do you think Hutter was under before the winter break, Tony? And, and will this result have eased that pressure somewhat? Uh, oh, yeah. I think he was under a lot of pressure. Um, although I don't really believe that he was close to getting fired <laughs> because uh, Gladbach really has to watch watch its finances Mm. (laughs) they pay crazy crazy 7.5 million for him i think um plus it looks like you know you you never know if they really qualify for for the europa or the champions league then there's this thing with uh janice zakaria and matthias ginter who could leave without uh, gladbach getting any money for them which would be really bad as well so i just don't think that max eva can fire hütter right now but um of course, the pressure from the fans, for example, is increasing. So the win was extremely important. Yeah. Uh, also for the atmosphere in the team, of course. But yeah, now they play Leverkusen, which is maybe a bigger challenge for Hütter than Bayern. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, back to Bayern for a moment. Uh, we mentioned earlier they had a few players missing uh, due to COVID and injuries. They had to dig deep into their academy to get a squad together for this game. Uh, some pretty unknown names on the bench. Um, Paul uh, Paul Vanner was one of them. He came off the bench in the second half, aged 16 years and 15 days, making him their youngest ever Bundesliga player. Is there a bit of buzz about him in, in Germany at the moment, Dominic? Um, after the game, I would say yes, because um, then everybody saw him, um, making him the, the youngest player for Bayern in their whole Bundesliga history. And right now, um, Bayern yeah let's say uh, uh, new suddenly his uh, contract will expire at the end of the season and um, they try to convince him and uh, he's also being part of the uh, squad right now uh, for the team training this week and maybe he's also um, playing uh, against Cologne or at least will sit on the bench and uh, right now there are some rumors about um, Jamal Musiala because uh, Paul Warner is not very um, sure about the next few steps at Bayern. But Musiala is the perfect example for him and also a good friend of him um, to show him what it can be being the next big thing at Bayern. But I think this is the only chance for Bayern to convince him uh, because when he looked up the uh, history of promising Bayern talents, um, yeah, he should look for a, another club uh, as soon as he can. Yeah. Was it correct that they, they couldn't call the under-23s for this game because they were still on the, the break? Uh, they, will, uh, they were just on vacation, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, they also had 17-year-old Lucas Copado on the bench, who I believe, Tony, is Hassan Sal- Hamadic's nephew. Is that right? Yeah, that's right then. Uh, actually, I looked it up. Hassan Salihamidzic is married to Esther Copado, who is the sister of former player Francisco Copado, <laughs> who is the father of Lucas Copado. Wow. So, uh, yeah, and Lucas Copado and Salihamidzic's son Nick actually played together for some years as well. But uh, yeah, Copado overtook his older cousin by now. Um, And people actually compare him uh, with Miroslav Klose. So he seems to have a lot of potential as well. (laughs) Just one big happy family up there. Yeah, really. 
Uh, on to Saturday's games now. And Borussia Dortmund moved back within six points of Bayern when two late goals saw them come from 2-0 down to win 3-2 at Eintracht Frankfurt in dramatic fashion. Did you expect uh, Dortmund to win this game, Dominic? It, it felt perfectly set up for me for them to for them to sort of fluff their lines after Bayern lost on Friday night. Um, yeah, but uh, at first it seems like it was the typical uh, Dortmund game after a Bayern loss. Mm. And yeah. um, honestly, um, with uh, taking a look of uh, on the record with Dortmund at Frankfurt, uh, there was not really much hope for me to uh, hope for a win. But as I said before, there were no people in the stadium and this is a big advantage for Frankfurt and this time a big advantage for Dortmund but um, honestly I was um, yeah not very sure that they will uh, win in the end just after 85 minutes <laughs> when Bellingham yeah. scored the equalizer I was uh, there was a plenty of hope that I would say nah maybe uh, we can score the winner but actually um, this is not really um, a convincing way to uh, play like a team that reach for the title yeah it's funny you mentioned Moda Hood earlier because he scored that winning goal exactly. and a pretty good goal as well and I mean if I'd scored that goal I would have been running around the stadium you know with my shirt off and everything but he just seemed to be like oh well yeah I scored a goal never mind <laughs> he was it's just kind of strange, right? got away from with uh, Erling Haaland's arm yeah I think <laughs> go, I think yeah. he tried to get some air and to breathe <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, the old the old wrestling match again. Yeah. <laughs> how, how are you feeling, uh, Dominic, about Marco Rosa at this point in his Dortmund tenure? Is it has it gone about as well as you expected, or, or worse than you expected? Um, it's a it's a really tough question right now because when you take a look at the table, you could say the scores are all right, and we're um, on the second place, which is some point of our goals this year. And this is fine, but the way we win and the way we play the games are often not convincing enough for me, to be honest. Um, when you mm-hmm. compare this uh, player style um, with Lucien Favre, for example, um, and they were way more convincing and way more um, the main team in the whole matches when they play with uh, Favre, uh, I'm not really sure how good Rosa is as a coach and especially not for Dortmund they tr- they try to um, buy the next Jürgen Klopp for years right now and hope yeah. when they have a louder coach on the sideline that this will be the next um, Jürgen Klopp but I'm not really convinced right now I mean when you take a look at the Champions League games for example uh, you could see that there's a, a huge difference right now especially in the games against uh, Amsterdam but to be fair, um, Dortmund is the team with the most injury days for a single player. They have right now 47 single days for one single player, uh, injury wow. days. And is, um, they are um, on that table the, the best team, you could say, for example. So this is a very big thing uh, which, you keep, uh, has to, um, which you have to keep in mind when you think about uh, Rose's work right now uh, at Dortmund. With no European football in the second half of the season, do you think that might be something that he can can focus on? We can still have uh, the (laughs) Europa League. (laughs) Yeah, that's not European football though. (laughs) I I forgot about that. Uh, Tony, uh, on the flip side, you're a Frankfurt fan. They had won six of their last seven matches before the winter break. How are you feeling about uh, their season at this point? And do you think Oliver Glasner has has turned things around after what was a difficult start for him? Uh, Yeah, I'm feeling quite good about their season right now. I'm 
optimistic that it won't get too difficult in the second part of the season. Uh, they really had a tough start, that's true, but they managed to stay calm and to get to know each other better. I mean, it was a new coach and a lot of new players, so they de developed amazing, I think. And I'm really glad that the club trusted uh, Glasner and didn't panic. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, I think he he did manage to turn things around. And, I mean, yeah, the Dortmund game now was <laughs> really unfortunate. But uh, games like this happen and they will hopefully learn from it. Um, plus, when the Europa League starts again, I think uh, that the... <laughs> What's that? <laughs> <laughs> I think that the motivation will be very high and they will get even more self-confident. Yeah, well, speaking of European football, the race is, is pretty fascinating in the Bundesliga at the moment. Just 10 points separating Hoffenheim in third and Hertha in 13th at the moment. Who do you think will qualify for Europe come the end of the season, Dominic? Who's who's in the strongest position out of all those teams? Uh, I think right now um, there will be some uh, changes when you take a look at the table right now and then uh, after the um, last match day. But uh, I have to look it up before um, and that is, uh, one surprised me a lot. We just have one European or let's say one uh, place for the uh, Europa League for the next season. We have at least mm. four plays um, for the Champions League, which is fine. And uh, I hope that uh, Dortmund, Leverkusen, Freiburg and obviously Bayern will qualify for the Champions League. But then there's just one uh, place, the fifth place, uh, which will um, take, uh, will join the, the uh, Europa League. Right. And um, then there's just another place for the uh, Europe, Europa Conference League. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Um, and I hope that uh, Frankfurt will qualify at the end, at least for the Europa League. And then uh, hopefully Cologne, which uh, they will uh, write their history with uh, Steffen Baumgart and uh, will do another successful chapter, I hope. Yeah. You mentioned Freiburg there. It's great to see them punching above their weight in, in fourth spot. That must be the, the feel-good story of the season in, in Bundesliga, I guess. Um, what is Christian Streich feeding those players, Tony, to get them performing so well? <laughs> yeah, uh, it really is a great story. But I think he's like Christian Streich in person, feel-good story of the Bundesliga for years now. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I have no idea what he's feeding them. But uh, yeah, I feel like he's like a dad for a lot of the players, which <laughs> seems to have a great impact on them. And um, he's probably also feeding them with a lot of humor and simply humanity. I think he just mm. treats everyone like like you and I treat each other. No, no special treatments because they are uh, famous football players. Yeah. And uh, of course, you need uh, you also need the right players for it. But that's where the club does a good job for you now. Yeah. So, Got that new yeah. stadium they've moved into, haven't they? And oh, yeah. The fans haven't really, <laughs> haven't really had a chance to experience it yet, which is quite strange. But uh, yeah, they're doing, doing no. incredibly well. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, uh, RB Leipzig got a much-needed 4-1 win over Mainz on Saturday. Um, how have they looked, Dominic, since Domenico Tedesco took over from Jesse Marsh, would you say? Um, yeah, this is a big uh, mystery of um, the Bundesliga right now because um, they've played four games with him. And uh, had won two times against uh, Mainz and Gladbach, and then lost against Bielefeld and also draw against Augsburg, which is uh, yeah totally myth. How you can yeah. play these games with such a talented squad? But I think um, Leipzig has a bigger problem right now um, after the big buyout they had last summer. 
because um, they still struggle to find new leaders on and off the pitch. And right now you have also a, a coach where, which I'm not really sure about if he's a really good coach for the Bundesliga or not. Because the miracle he did with Schalke in 2018, I guess it was, mm. when they finished uh, second place, was also maybe just a miracle at Gelsenkirchen and not really a proof that Tedesco is a good Bundesliga coach. So let's see what they will finish in the end. But I don't think that they will made it into the uh, international business for the next yeah. season. Yeah, it seemed like a very strange decision to appoint him, but we'll uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, final question about the Bundesliga this week is also about uh, managers. It's about Wolfsburg, who have now lost six Bundesliga matches in a row. Uh, Florian Kohlfeldt took over from Mark van Bommel at the end of October. Does it look like they got that appointment wrong, though, Tony? It's not going so well there, is it? <laughs> no, it's not. And uh, yeah, I think they they made the appointment wrong. <laughs> it's really uh, crazy how nothing works out in Wolfsburg right now. Um, but in my opinion, Florian Kofeld is um, totally overrated in general. And this gets mm. obvious again now. Um, if Wolfsburg, Wolfsburg doesn't manage a complete turnaround now, Kofeld will be sacked again soon. So, um, uh. yeah, also when you, also when you listen to the interviews from players like Wout Weghorst or Maximilian Arnold, um, on the weekend, for example, they they sounded so desperate and there was no motivation in their eyes so something is going completely wrong there and i think one of one of it is Kofeld, unfortunately yeah are they going to be relegated do you think uh well i i uh said they will finish 16 so they have to play relegation Joining me now in part two of the show to talk about Serie A is Davide Zanelli. Hey Dan, hello guys. And Mario De Zanet. Hello guys. Hello guys, welcome to the show. So I'm going to ask you both a question to begin with, which I asked to our German colleagues earlier. Uh, what was the, the funniest, the best, the most interesting or the most unusual thing that happened in Italian football this week in your opinion? Uh, Mario, you can go first. Well, it's hard to choose to be honest because a lot of things happened. <laughs> because, I mean... The Super Cup yesterday night. Juventus Roma was am- Roma Juventus was amazing. If I have to pick maybe something that it's very interesting was the interview of Sanchez after the game, which he, when he said like something like, "I'm a lion on a cage, and we play. I'm a monster," which was something kind of weird but very interesting to hear after the game. He said at the end of the of the of the game uh, they were asking him uh, like, "You have been struggling in the last two seasons, didn't?" Play much, and he was like, "Yeah, but this is only because Conte didn't want me to play." He kept saying, "I was the best after every training, but he never let me play." And I am a lion in a cage. I am a monster. I need to perform. <laughs> yeah, we'll come back to that game in a minute. It was an incredible game. How about you, Davide? Actually, I will tell you something funny, but in an embarrassing way, because the Italian government approved the new restrictions. And uh, they decided to set a limit of uh, 5,000 people in the stadiums. The only problem is that, uh, as people can easily imagine, there are stadiums with uh, 90,000 seats capacity and stadiums with uh, 7,000 seats capacity. So, for example, Venezia can possibly have a full stadium with the new rules and Inter is going to have 5,000 people in, uh, in San Siro, which has uh, 80, 85,000 uh, seats. 
So this doesn't make any sense at all, but guys, uh, this is Serie A, this is Italy, it's pretty normal. <laughs> Have there been any more fights with the uh, the ultras on the on the canal in, in Venezia? Uh, was it the canal or the river? Yeah, it was the canal. Apparently, yeah. but it was just a thing, such a scene, wasn't it? Like, kind yeah, of, it was amazing. Yeah, it is. <laughs> well, let's start by talking about Wednesday's Supercoppa Italiana, which Inter won 2-1 against Juventus thanks to a dramatic 120th minute winner from Alexis Sanchez. Uh, Mario, uh, first question on this, how seriously is the Supercoppa taken in Italy? Is it a trophy that every club really wants to win or, or is it kind of a glorified friendly? Well, I think it depends, you know, every year it's kind of different. It depends on... Um, Who's playing? And this one was really big because of Juventus and Inter playing together. You know, the rivalry that there is. And uh, it was the first time they played since 2005. And then I think it depends also on like the last ones that I remember are the one in which Juventus lost because everyone wanted to beat Juventus. That was like winning Scudetto all the time. And this one is special for different reasons because it's like something that um, was really weighted, especially by Inter fans. And for Juventus, it was something that they tried. It was an occasion to try to say, we're still there. And then, of course, the ending, the ending made it even more wonderful. You know? Yeah. I mean, the, the scenes at the end with, with the, the Inter players going crazy after that goal, the Juventus players in tears will suggest that's not a glorified friendly to me, but it's just interesting the contrast between that and, say, for example, the Community Shield in the UK, which is treated very differently and is, is kind of a glorified friendly. Um, but it's Inter's first Supercoppa since 2010. Um, do you think they deserve to win this game in the end, Davide? Yes, I really think so. Um, there was uh, actually, there was a game for, for 90 or 120 minutes, uh, it was mostly Inter keeping the ball uh, and Juventus uh, trying to, I don't know, keep the ball away from the area with a with a bus uh, parked in front of the of the goal. <laughs> there was not much from Juventus actually. Also because uh, uh, DiBala started from the bench, uh, so there was not much uh, creativity on the pitch. Uh, Juventus tried to to do the classic uh, Allegri game, like they did also against uh, against Chelsea. I, I remember in the first leg of the group phase in Champions League. Uh, they wait there and they try to go with counter-attacks, uh, but also they don't have Chiesa. Dybala was starting from the bench, as I said. Kuduseski didn't perform too well. Uh, so they didn't have many arrows. They didn't have many options. Uh, and uh, Inter just created chances, created chances at one point scored. Actually, I think Inter could uh, close the game uh, much earlier. Let's take it back to, to last weekend now and better times for Juventus with that incredible 4-3 win against Roma. Was this the best Serie A match of the season so far, Davide, would you say? No, I don't think it was the best one. It was for sure a funny game, but I think it was a game between two teams that are really struggling. That They are having good players, players that can score great goals. For example, like Pellegrini's free kick, Dybala's goal, like the individualities are, are very good. But both teams are struggling that they cannot play the proper football they would like to play, or at least they, they were used to play. So it was, uh, it was just that, I think. Like the result uh, is happening only because of that, because there were not many, uh, there was no clarity on the pitch. Like uh, Roma starting well, then Juventus taking over, uh, but so many mistakes. Uh, so many counter-attacks. Uh, I mean, the intensity was good, uh, but this is the perfect picture of the, the moment they are living. If Roma won 4-3, uh, 
it wouldn't change uh, basically nothing. Still, I, I think it was pretty clear of the level of the the two teams now. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, uh, Juve also found out this week that Federico Chiesa's season is over after tearing his ACL against Roma. How big of a, a blow is that, not just to Juventus, but also to Italy's hopes of qualifying for, for the World Cup, Mario? Well, I mean, it's pretty big um, for Italy, for sure, because he's been the guy that decided the games, the Euros. I think he's the only player that has a flair in Italy, that ability to be decisive all the time is in growing a lot even in being like playing the big games and I don't think we have anyone else that has that level so it's very very big for sure and I mean playing without him in a match is going to be hard and for Juventus as well because of course maybe there are other players that can be that kind of giving that kind of uh, goals and dribbles and stuff. On trying to look on a bright side of the thing for you, I think maybe it's gonna be the time for Kulusevski to have more freedom to play more. This is a player that has struggled a lot lately, and it's like kind of uh, having. He's out can be a good thing for him, I guess. Uh, that game as well. Roma were 3-1 up against Juventus on Sunday before it all fell apart. They conceded three goals in seven minutes. Uh, afterwards, Jose Mourinho suggested his players are mentally weak. Uh, do you think he's feeling a bit of pressure now, Davide? Well, for sure he's feeling a bit of pressure then. I'm pretty sure that he knows uh, he knows how to manage it, but coaching in uh, in Roma is like uh, Napoli. In this kind of uh, cities, uh, there's always a lot of pressure. And people in Italy know, especially like Roma fans, uh, always used to put a lot of pressure on coaches. I have to say that, for example, Mourinho compared to to Fonseca, he has much le- less pressure. Like Fonseca was criticized after after every single game. There are some games now with Mourinho that you can see like there are excuses around him, uh, and uh, they are saying, okay, but let's give him time, let's let him. Uh, build his own team. Um, so this is the reason like, why Roma is now buying new players in, in January. But a part of that, uh, Mourinho is having this... Uh, like, you can see that uh, after every game, there is a different excuse. Like, and it's all mostly about the players or the referees. Like, he, he doesn't do any mistake at all. Never. Like, it's never about him. <laughs> and of course, like everyone knows uh, Mourinho, this is his style. Uh, I, I'm having the feeling that there is something else missing, like an idea of football. Roma used to play a very good football again, uh, under, uh, under Fonseca, and now it's changing a bit. So also Roma is struggling by this point of view. And they need Mourinho. I, I think Mourinho needs time for sure, but he also needs to change something else. Yeah, I, 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 he was having a go at the referee after the Milan game last week, wasn't it? I enjoyed that and him saying that he, uh, Milan wanted to have him as their coach one time and he, he, he was so glad that he, he turned them down and, and all that kind of thing. It's just, uh, classic Jose, isn't it? Uh, it, it everything exactly. seems to get t- toxic with Mourinho eventually and it seems to be coming quicker and quicker at every job that he does now. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, seems to be blowing up for him at Roma, uh, but they have got Ainsley Maitland Niles now. He made his day before Roma against Juventus. Is he the kind of player Roma needed, Mario? And how do you think he played on his debut i mean the debut was not that good it was um 
one of the responsible players for the comeback of Juventus. And I mean, it can be giving, it can give something to Roma, but I kind of am on the same um, page of Davide. Like, he, there is something more than like just players on on one level. Like Oliveira, that is the other guy that they just signed, can be um, more important because I think he can give that kind of personality and experience that they are. He's asking for because he's the main. Like he's asking a lot. Um, this kind of thing, the player be more having more personality. Um, I mean, Maitre Nice can be a good add. He's a vertical player, can be good for him. But at the same time, I think there is something more than just players. Uh, let's see. Well, they've also signed Sergio Oliveira uh, from Porto. That's a loan deal, I believe. Is is he a, is he a, the sort of player that they were that's going to improve them? Do you think? Well, he can be very good. He can be very good, and I think it's more him than Maitre Nice than. Again, I think the the problem is bigger than just players. But let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Uh, reigning champions Inter remain top of the table after a 2-1 win over Lazio. They lost uh, Antonio Conte and Romelu Lukaku in the summer. Um, it hasn't seemed to have affected them too much at all. Have you been surprised, Davide, by how successful Simone Inzaghi has been so far? Yes. Yes, I have. Um... Honestly, I expected Inzaghi to do this kind of job. I think the most difficult part uh, was uh, was done by Inter CEO Marotta because in a summer where uh, the ownership uh, cut you every funds and tell you to sell uh, the two two of the best players uh, from the previous seasons, and uh, still you are you are able to you manage to uh, find a, a new coach with a similar style from Conte. Um, New players like Zeko, and honestly, the biggest difference between Zeko and uh, and Lukaku is more about the age, not about the quality of the player. Because, as you know better than me, Zeko is one of the most elegant and probably smartest uh, strikers uh, in Europe. He sure is, and uh, he, he finds uh, very quickly a good chemistry with uh, Lautaro. But also, this is something we could all expect because. Uh, Lautaro is a, Zeko is a, the kind of a smart striker that know how, how to play with a, with another striker. The, the thing was, uh, was done, uh, was done by Marotta. The, the second step uh, was about Inzaghi because Conte used to play with this uh, 3-5-2, like very um, pragmatic, very, very clear. Like uh, every, every player having a duty on the pitch, every player following Conte's rule, Conte's approach. With Inzaghi, is a similar way of playing football, but attacking, you can see the players have much more freedom. And apparently, they are enjoying it more. I don't know if they're going to be such a winning team as Conte, Conte's, at least in Serie A, because it's going to be a long league and you never know what's going to happen. But they, they developed a better football, I think, under Inzaghi. Yeah, they've they've even got players like Alessandro Bastoni scoring beautiful goals, haven't they? So everything's everything's looking great for them at the moment. They're a great team to watch. Um, AC Milan are just behind Inter in second place. Um, how pleased, Mario, have you been with with the Rossoneri season so far? And, and do you think maybe they can uh, they can make a challenge for the Scudetto? Yeah, I think um, I'm pretty surprised because, like, I was 
kind of thinking that, you know, losing Donnarumma and Salanoglu would have been something big for Milan. But at the end, they kept the, the important thing, which is like something that uh, Maldini and the whole club um, merits who have been able to like confirm the team and create a solid team. And this year is being more about making grow the players that were already there. Tonali and Leao especially became players of a European level, like Champions League level this year. And so that's been a big step. For the Scudetto, they're there. And I mean, it's going to be a great challenge until the end, I think. Because, for example, I mean, if Milan won the derby in November, was it? It would have been plus 10 winter, which is something that now seems so far away, but it was just November. So, like, it's very unpredictable to me. And they're there. Then let's see, but it's surely it's going to be, they're going to be there, I think, until April, May, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like it's going to be one of the most, if not the most interesting title race in Europe, actually. So, looking forward to seeing how that pans out. Yes, I think so. Yeah. Uh, now, I know how much you Italians love the Calcio Mercato, and I have to ask uh, about one of the hottest properties in European football at the moment, Dusan Vlahovic. Uh, how good is he, Davide, and, and do you think he'll still be a Fiorentina player when the transfer window closes at the end of the month? I think he might stay until uh, the end of January, but he's for sure going to leave uh, in, uh, in June because uh, his agents made it pretty clear uh, they're not going to extend the contract with the Fiorentina. He, he made a strange interview with a Serbian website saying, uh, never say never, who knows, uh, but it's pretty clear that his agents are pushing uh, for him to live in the summer and Fiorentina is going to want money for him. So I, I guess at the end Fiorentina is going to ask uh, a bit less than the 70, 80 millions people are talking about now, but about that, Vlaovic, no doubts. Like, he's super, super good. He's, I think, uh, of course, like, Alanda is the, the top level, the, the comparison we have to take. Uh, Alanda is on another level, but Vlaovic is right behind there. Vlaovic is there, he's complete. Uh, he can play, I think, also with uh, different kinds of football uh, and with different coaches. Uh, I will see him uh, playing perfectly under Guardiola. I, honestly, I cannot really understand why there, are, there is still this rumor about uh, Harry Kane going to... Man City and maybe uh, Vlaovic moving to, to Tottenham. I'm sure Vlaovic would be perfect under Conte, but I really see Vlaovic as the perfect Guardiola striker. Yeah, there's been some talk about Arsenal as well. So I suppose if he could play for Guardiola, he could probably play for Mikel Arteta as well. That would be maybe a good fit for him. But uh, do you think he's pro- maybe maybe good enough to play for one of the best teams in, as opposed to, to Arsenal, who are not quite there at the moment? That's the thing. I, I, I think he turned down the... Uh, Arsenal offer, especially because of that, that he's looking to make uh, the big step in the summer and to go for a top, top team. And that's why also I don't see him moving to Borussia Dortmund, for example, because that would mean uh, to do a kind of a small step waiting for another bigger team to come. Like all respect for uh, Borussia and Arsenal, but I think he's ready to perform for a top, top uh, European club. Yeah, looking forward to seeing what he can do. Uh, former Milan striker Christoph Piontek is back in Serie A after he joined Fiorentina. Are you glad to see him back in Italy, Mario? And does his arrival maybe suggest that Vlahovic will will leave? Is he is he the replacement for him? 
Well, yes, that's the idea on the long term. And like, for sure, it's going to be interesting to see like how it's going to play in this Fiorentina team because it's like, it's not exactly the same team uh, of uh, the first Milan where he scored a lot, the Genoa where he scored a lot. Is they're playing, they're playing amazing football, they're playing the ball a lot. So, and it's very different from from Blauvich, I think. But it can be a very interesting sub because it can be somebody that comes in and changes the game and score goals. And and it's very, um, I think, it's interesting to see how Fiorentina is still spending money and buying all these interesting players like I don't know, Gonzalez or. I mean, they're doing a good job and that starts from the club and then for, for with, with Italiano, which has been amazing, the, the coach of this year. And so I'm sure he's going to be an important player for them. Then I don't know at the end of the season if he's going to become the starter of an Italiano team. I'm not sure he's going to be the right fit, but we have six months before. So let's see what happens. We'll see, yeah. And uh, one of the weirdest transfers of all time was completed last week when Lorenzo Insigne left Napoli to join Toronto FC. Uh, He's only 31. Why has he left Napoli at this stage in his career, Davide? And and why has he gone to MLS now, do you think? Man, like, first we have to say, this doesn't make much sense. (laughs) But uh, the only reason, like, the only reason how we can explain this uh, is that he, he doesn't want to face uh, Napoli. He didn't want to be in the same league as Napoli. So maybe go to Milan, Inter, uh, or any other team. Uh, he would know he would have to face Napoli two, three, four times in a season. And uh, that would be impossible for him. But this is something strictly related about the way people live football in Napoli or maybe in South America. Um, but uh, apart of that... Uh, of, of, for sure, he wanted to to do a, a different experience, uh, and they were offering him a lot, a lot of money. So apparently, he didn't have uh, such good offers from uh, from top European clubs, uh, which to me is a bit strange because I think he could be playing easily in uh, top Champions League uh, clubs. Maybe not always as a starting eleven, starting in the starting eleven, but he would play a lot uh, in any team, I think. But yeah, he took this decision. I think it's also something related with uh, his family and uh, going to Toronto. He know he would be a top star. There is a big Italian community there. And maybe he, he also wants to give uh, his sons the opportunity to learn English, uh, to grow up in a different environment. Uh, I mean, Napoli can be also kind of difficult uh, if you're a football player. And uh, especially for Insigne, there has always been a lot, a lot of pressure on him because when they were winning, of course, he was the hero. But when things were not going in the best way, he was always one of the most responsible. Yeah, that kind of guilt around him. Yeah, do you think history will look back on him as a Napoli legend? Yeah, history has to go back at him as a Napoli legend. He, he is a Napoli legend. He did incredible, incredible stuff at Napoli. And honestly, I think if he was in another team in Italy. Uh, he would have performed much better because of this uh, pressure uh, pressure thing. And for the third and final part of the show to talk Spanish football, I'm joined by Manu Dominguez. Hi everyone, hi Dan. And Daniel Cadena-Jordan. 
Hey, 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 thanks again for the invite. So as I asked our German and Italian colleagues, uh, a question for you both to begin with. What was the, the highlight of the week for you in Spanish football? The best bit, the funniest bit, the most interesting thing or most unusual thing? Uh, Danny, for you. Well, uh, there was this moment last night after the Atletico Madrid Athletic Bilbao match. Um, Mino might remember the player's name, but there's this guy who celebrated once with a trumpet in the dressing room. And last night he pulled the trumpet out for a second time. Um, so I, I know I think it's kind of cool that you know you just happen to have a work colleague that carries a trumpet with him uh, all the way to Saudi Arabia just to celebrate in case they win. So where was the trumpet? Just on the side of the pitch, or uh, in the, no? This was the dressing room already, but still, oh, like okay, uh, right, right, yeah, quite the party atmosphere, I reckon. Nice. Yeah, last year when Atleti Bilbao won against Barcelona, I don't know if you remember, probably our audience, they remember when there was like a player, Asier Villalibre, and he just started to play the trumpet in the middle of the field. <laughs> and one of the players, they were like jumping around. And yeah, it was read like some days ago, it was the information that he was bringing again the trumpet, but they didn't expect that he was going to play before the final, you know, because at the end it's only the semifinal. But I guess that Atleti Bilbao players, they wanted just to have fun. And in the dressing room, they were like playing a bit, yeah. Yeah, you never know what's going to happen in the final. You've got to live in the moment, I guess, haven't you? So, yeah, fair play to him. How about you, Manu? What was your highlight of the week? Yeah. Actually, it was really funny for me uh, during the Classical when I started to read Twitter after the, the, 90, minutes, the 90 minutes because I read that a lot of memes about Pedri because it was uh, his eighth extra time that he had played in the last year and all of the memes around him, they were like really hilarious because... Uh, I don't know if you remember, but last year Pedri had to play the Euro Cup and also the the Olympics, and yeah. he had he played uh, four extra times in those two tournaments, and also three extra times during during the season with Barcelona playing Copa del Rey and also Supercopa. And yeah, after two months that he didn't play because of the injury, he has to come back, and the first match he has to play an extra time again. And yeah, <laughs> the members they were like super funny. Yeah, he's a machine, isn't he? Yeah, it seems, but actually it was maybe too much machine, let's say, last year because he had been injured for the whole season. So we just yeah. hope that he, you know, come down a little bit and we can enjoy enjoy his, his game at least for, for several weeks. Yes. Uh, well, speaking of the Supercopa de España, that's where we're going to start today. Uh, after the, the semifinals were played in Riyadh this week. Uh, firstly, I'll ask you, Danny, the same question I asked our Italian friends. Is the Supercopa a serious trophy in Spain? Um, I think it's in the eye of the beholder kind of situation in the sense that Athletic Bilbao obviously take this seriously because they do know that their chances of winning something outside of this are, you know, slim and none or relatively smaller than Barca, Madrid or Atletico. Um, but it does have this sort of, you know, uh, pre-season tournament vibe to it. You know, it's played in a different country across, not across the world, but, you know, considerably far away from Spain. Uh, it's an invitational tournament that kind of has some rules to, you know, favor the, you know, Clásicos and all that. So um, short answer is, yeah, they do take it seriously. But the long answer is maybe with a pinch of salt, depending on who you ask. So did they make sure that Barca and Real Madrid played each other by putting them together in the semifinal? Was that what happened? Well, I reckon that's uh, the surest option you can have. I'm not sure if that was like diligently done that way. But, you know, when you invite four teams and two of them are Barca and Madrid, uh, you do expect them to play semifinals or finals together at one point. So, uh, yeah. you know, they just played the numbers game this time, happened to have it uh, set up for the semifinals this time. Yeah, yeah. How do you feel, uh, Manu, uh, about the, the the tournament being played in Saudi Arabia? Oof. Uh, about the tournament itself, let let's start with the with the format. I really like it. I think that it was like a very good change to to put this tournament in January and not at the beginning of the season in summer because the teams they are already starting to play. Uh, I remember some Super Copas that they were playing in summer where 
many players from South America, they were like not really uh, on shape in order to play. So some teams they were playing with with uh, with not the best the best players and also in the in the best shape. And actually, this format with semifinal and final, I think, is quite good. And uh, about the situation of being played in Saudi Arabia, uh, as Mourinho used to say, I prefer not to speak. <laughs> I mean, we have an agreement with the Spanish Federation, so everyone knows that they do for for money. But I think that it's already everything said about Saudi Arabia and how they uh, deal with the human rights. I think it's not like a really good decision, but yeah, it is how it is. Yeah, that's right, because it's, uh, it's the Spanish Federation that put this game on, isn't it? It's not La Liga, so I understand yeah. Javier Tebas wasn't very happy about it as the president of La Liga, is that right? I mean, actually, Javier Tebas is the first one who tried to bring food, to, to, to put football outside in order to bring money to, to uh, La Liga. Okay. But in this case, it's the, it's the federation. They closed an agreement till 2029 20, uh, in Arabia. Saudi Arabia is, playing, is paying, I think it's 30 million per year for every, for every match, every super, uh, super cup that is, that is playing in, in Saudi Arabia. But I mean, that's the main reason, that they are doing it for money. Mm. What I don't really understand is the hypocrisy that you can read when, for example, Rubiales is talking in the media and they say, no, no, we don't do that for money. We do it because I think that we can change the way of the people behave in Saudi Arabia. Mm. I think that we are doing something right, you know. And actually, in my opinion, that's hypocrisy. What is happening in Saudi Arabia is going to happen anyway if Barcelona and Real Madrid are playing there once a year or not. So at least, you know, face the reality, say, okay, we are going there because we need, we want to reach, we want to achieve more money and, and get benefits and, and that's it. Don't try to, to treat us as uh, if we are full. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But as you say, the semi-finals were very entertaining with Real Madrid beating Barcelona 3-2 after extra time on Wednesday night. Uh, Karim Benzema and Vinicius Junior both scored, meaning they've now got 38 goals between them this season. Would you say they're the most dynamic duo in Europe right now, Danny? Well, they're definitely up there, no? I think uh, they have solid competition in Liverpool, Salah, and Diego Jota, who are, I'm reading here, Jota has 11 goals across uh, the league and Champions League as well. Salah, 23 across both tournaments. And then, of course, there's Lewandowski and Serge Gnabry from Bayern. So I think they're definitely up there. And it's really remarkable to see Vinicius definitely step up his game this season, finally, after you know lots of years of expectation in Spain about what he was actually um, capable to bring to the table. Um, and we're seeing it right now. He's very dynamic, very quick, very explosive. Uh, and he is finally settling into that starting 11. Uh, arguably one of the players least likely to be benched this season, I reckon. Mm-hmm. And Benzema, who's, you know, uh, it seems like never ending quality on his side. Uh, I think they're making a great job this season. They're doing a good job. Uh, they've been, you know, you know, vital for Real Madrid's claim of La Liga, or as position of favorites right now, leaders in the table. And uh, they're probably going to be the two most solid arguments they have, maybe with Modric added to that mix uh, for Madrid having a decent cup run season um, in in the Champions League, maybe. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Modric, actually, because he's another one who's just not slowing down, is he? What, is he 36, nearly 37 now? And he's still class, isn't he? Yeah. He's playing amazing. Like yeah. he's like the, the the heart and soul of the team at this point. Even, mm. um, I mean, I suppose technically Benzema and Vinicius Junior aren't a duo because they play in a front three. Marco Asensio played up alongside them uh, in this game. Is he the the best option to play in that front three alongside those two? Would you say, Manu? Oof. I mean, if if every player would be in his best level, I think that the best option, of course, would be Eden Hazard. But if we put Eden Hazard out of the equation because he has not play at all a good level in the last two years or three years for Real. My favorite one is Asensio. I think that uh, he 
he's able to reach the goal easier than Lucas Vázquez or Rodrigo, but that's true that Asensio is very intermittent. He can play good one match and then to disappear for two or three matches. So I think that what Ancelotti is doing, try to uh, show in the minutes between Asensio and Rodrigo till one of him actually uh, explode and bring, uh, bring to the team the, his best level, I think it's a, a good idea. Yeah, I, I remember Asensio when he when he first burst onto the scene in sort of 2017-18, like he looked incredible and he's kind of he's kind of dipped a little bit since then. Do you feel like he's getting back to that level now where he's sort of pretty explosive again? I think that the, the main injury that he suffered one year and a half ago, he was almost one year out of the of the field. He's affecting him mentally because uh, you can see that he's playing with a little bit of fear in every action. In my opinion, the best thing that Asensio has is his shoot, so his left foot, it's incredible. But he needs to be a little bit quicker in order to get the position before shooting. And I think that it's actually what, what affects him the most in order to don't, don't get like better numbers. Because at the end, I think that he's a player that with two, three movements, in the other day in the Super Cup, he has like two, three chances that... Uh, Eight or eight of ten or nine of ten, he's able to to reach the goal and, and he didn't. But yeah, I mean, he's still young and he's like a, a potential, a very very good player for Real Madrid and the Spanish national team. Yeah, how old is he now? I would say 24, 25. Right, he's got the whole life ahead of him. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking after the semi final, Barca boss Xavi suggested they they play with a bit of an inferiority complex to begin with, which they kind of shook off as the game wore on. Was that your reading of this game too, Danny? And how do you think Barca are progressing under Xavi? Well, at least under Xavi, now they have a clear identity again, or they kind of went back to the more familiar Barcelona school of you know thoughts, let's call it that, or a school of play uh, that we're used to as football fans. Um, I think, obviously, he lacks maybe the experience other coaches might have had or other candidates for the, for the Barca bench uh, might have had. But uh, like I said, he's part of this school of thought, this way of, of understanding football that Barcelona has. Obviously, if it's like a, like a hand in a glove, so it's, it's just fine in that regard. Regarding the game in specific, um, you kind of could tell that they kind of grew themselves into the game. Uh, Madrid dominated at the beginning. Uh, two or three counter, uh, counter strikes. Uh, one of them fin- uh, finished with a goal from, from Vinicius, actually. Um, and yeah, little by little, they kind of started settling in. They do have also to their advantage that little by little, the players are coming back from injuries and from COVID. So you do have a better squad to pick from, which wasn't necessarily the case a couple of weeks ago. Manu can tell everything about it, how complicated it was not so long ago for, for them to field an actually decent team. But um, slow progress, but definitely they're going in the right direction. They're trusting Masia prospects again. Uh, you see a lot of new names, a lot of new fa- uh, fresh faces even in the team, uh, under 21s, you know, playing decent amount of minutes. And the fact that, you know, Pedri and Asofati are probably two of the biggest uh, names or two of the biggest promises and, you know, them being the age they are tells you a big chunk of the story you need to know about Barcelona nowadays. They're just basically in a rebuild phase right now. Yeah, and they've got Luke de Jong, yeah. who's scored three <laughs> three games in a row now, I think. The Wonder Dutchman, yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> and uh, and their dream teen, who's 21 years old, but let's not uh, let that uh, affect <laughs> a, a good nickname. Ferran Torres made his debut for Barca in this game. Uh, Manu, can you explain how Barca were able to afford and register Ferran and, and what Samuel Umtiti has to do with all this? To be honest, how Barcelona has been able to afford the amount of money that they have to play to pay to Manchester City, I have no idea. I think that it's <laughs> gonna be paid in, it's gonna be paid like uh, not not at once. So le, le, we will see how they're gonna be able to register him. And but the the, the main thing this year in, in January was the salary cap. Barcelona has to reduce the salary for for the, the next six months. 
And actually, there were like two operations that they were done in order to, to register Ferran. The first one was Coutinho, that he has sent on loan to Aston Villa. And actually, mm -hmm. it's Aston Villa the one who is going to pay 65% of the salary. And the other 35% of the salary, even Coutinho has decided to refuse to, to, to get it. So it was like a, a, a very good action from, from, his, from his side because it allowed to Barcelona even to, to increase the salary cap. And then Barcelona was waiting for uh, Osman Dembélé renewal uh, because with Osman Dembélé renewal, the, they they were gonna be able to to ex, to split in more years the amount of money that they have to uh, the amount of money that they have. How do you say this expression? Rentabilize of yeah. the of, of of his sign like five years ago. But what happened? Osman Dembélé decided to refuse uh, his extension, so Barcelona had to look for a fast uh, option and and it came this 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 uh, uh, contract extension from from Samuel Untiti that of course was shock for all of us but at the end what Barcelona is doing is in instead of being paying this uh, this from this month till till June 6 million from from Untiti Barcelona is going to split this amount of money Untiti decided to reduce even a 10% of his salary weeks and Barcelona was able to to register Ferran Torres for 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 the next the next season. Let's see what is going to happen in summer because in summer, <laughs> obviously Coutinho is going to be back with his salary, so the salary cap is going to be even lower. So I think that the Joan Laporta and especially Reverter and, and Matteo Alemani they are going to need to let us say make some tricks, some magic tricks in order to to put all of the numbers together because I think it's not going to be easy. Yeah, yeah, but but about the Ferran signing as a as a Barca fan, are you excited by that? Do you think he's going to bring something new to the team? Oh, actually, you know more about Ferran Torres than me because he, <laughs> he has been playing in your team in the last years. I mean, we have talked about Ferran Torres a lot because I remember that you have asked me also when when Ferran Torres moved to Manchester City. Yeah. I think that he's a player who who is close to the goal, and actually, it's something. These kind of players, the ones that you you need to pay a lot of money for him. He's only twenty two years old. And even if he's not playing a lot of matches in Manchester City, he had got he he has got very good numbers also with the national team. I think that uh, with the matches he has played in the national team, never ever in the story of of Spain has scored a, a better a, a better rate of of goals. And I think that Barcelona needs that. Let's see how he's gonna fit, but he's gonna be surrounded of of colleagues from the national team like Ansu Fati, Pedri, Sergio Busquets, Gabi, Jordi Alba. So I think it's a good signing, maybe too expensive, but I mean. I think it's a kind of operation that has not a big risk. Like, for example, could have, let's see, Griezmann, for example, that he was older already and in case that he doesn't work, you cannot sell him for that money after. I think that Ferran Torres with 22, 22 years old, even if he is not working perfectly, you can get a revenue or a revenue, no, but maybe a, a good sell for 30, 35 millions in the future. Yeah, I think he's a, a really good player. He showed a lot of potential at City. Didn't play an awful lot, and when and he and he started this season really well, and and uh, unfortunately got an injury, which which meant he, he didn't play for us again, basically, which was a bit of a shame. But um, I think it's. I mean, a lot of City fans felt that Barca got a quite a good deal <laughs> for selling him for for what, only fifty million euros, was it in the end? So um, I think he's definitely a player who can who can go into great things and is a. Good goal scorer, got a nice eye for goal. Um, I mean, he came to City as kind of a wide player and now he's uh, he seems more of a central striker, which is uh, something Barca probably do need. Um, what do you think his arrival at Barca means, Danny, for, for Usman Dembele and, and maybe Memphis Depay? Is there a bit of chat that maybe he might be on the way out at some point? 
Well, I mean, the main story right now, uh, as as January was arriving, was Dembele's extension in Barcelona and that little plot twist at the end where he just went bonkers and started asking for an insane amount of money. <laughs> um, so that kind of put, you know slammed the brakes on that operation. Barca kind of stuck now on the what we're going to do now with with Dembele. Um, so I think that front is going to have its own course, regardless of Ferran Torres does or does not do with Barcelona. Uh, Memphis Depay, though, on the other hand, he was signed in summer as sort of like the star signing, right? So obviously, in comes Ferran. They pay a decent amount of money for him, even though Man City feel a bit cheated in the price in the end. Um, but I think there's going to be steady competition there. Keep in, keep in mind as well that, you know, Luke de Jong is probably going to leave the team sooner than later. Um, and as you said, he's been playing more uh, towards the middle lately, Torres. So definitely... There's, there's room for both of them, I reckon, up front in Barcelona at the moment. But obviously, it also depends on what happens in summer, who's going to arrive in summer, how many players are going to manage to keep. Uh, of all those low knees, how many are they going to be able to relocate permanently? So, I know, they're still juggling a lot of balls, it seems. And um, I don't know. Uh, but I, it, my hunch would be, you know, they were going to keep Depay and Ferran Torres from the get-go, right? Mm. Uh, so, I reckon that's kind of like the plot or what Laporta might be angling to do. Yeah, it made me laugh when I read that um, when Xavi heard about Usman Dembele's wage demands, he was speechless. <laughs> Could just imagine that. I'm getting that phone call, can't you? Uh, in, it just literally say, I'm speechless. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in the, the other Supercopy semi-final, Athletic Club came from behind to beat Atletico Madrid 2-1, courtesy of a winning goal from 19-year-old Nico Williams on Thursday night. He's the younger brother of Iñaki Williams. Uh, a big things expected of him in, in Bilbao, Manu? Yeah, I think so. Actually, most of people in Bilbao, they, they, they say that he could be even better than Iñaki. I like him more than Iñaki. I just said it yesterday with my with my colleagues, Danny and, and Carlos, in, in our Spanish podcast. I think that he's, let's say, more sensitive-footed with, uh, with his feet, with the ball. I mean, Iñaki Williams is especially pace and, and fast. And Nico Williams is also fast, but especially, I think that he has as I say, more sensitive with the ball and especially in front of the goal. And yeah, we could see it not only yesterday with the goal against Atletico de Madrid, but also last week in, in Copa del Rey, he scored like a brace uh, in, in Jaén. And I think that actually he's, he's 19 years old and a very, very promising one. Let's see. Let's see. At the end, Atleti Bilbao, everyone here knows his, his philosophy. They need to bring players from, from the academy and especially they were... Uh, being affected uh, by this lack of, of someone who providing goals after Aduri's retirement. And I think that, yeah, right now with Iñaki Williams, that it, it seems that he's uh, really old because he has been playing for a lot of years. He's still a young player. Also, also Sunset and now, now Nico Williams. I think that promising years are coming, are coming from the people in San Mames. Yeah, I enjoyed it a couple of weeks ago, was it, when um, Athletic played Osasuna and Nico nearly had his leg broken by uh, Chimi Avila and uh, his big brother stuck up for him, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, at the end it's like a relationship there in the in the, in the the dressing room and it has been like a lot of uh, interviews uh, about the brotherhood and about the, his story with their family and everything and and. It, it, it's it's easy to see that they are like really really together. It's not like another cases of brotherhood in the in the football. I think that they are like they have been grow. Probably it was not so easy for them at, at the beginning, but now they are in the first team of Atleti Bilbao. They are like an example for many young players there in the in the city, and and it's really really interesting to see how how they are gonna how they are gonna perform during the next years in in La Liga. 
Yeah. And uh, Atletico Madrid, uh, they only managed a 2-2 draw with Villarreal at the weekend, which leaves them 16 points behind league leaders Real Madrid, although they do have a game in hand. Um, what has happened to Atleti this season, Danny? How have they gone from being the champions to, to being in a battle for, for, for Champions League football? Um, well, I think one of the main things, and it reminds me a bit of a quote that Guardiola said when he moved to Bayern, uh, it was, the hard part is not getting to the top, the hard part is staying there. I think that's yeah. what Simeone is kind of struggling right now to do, right? Uh, he's built up arguably better team, I think, this year uh, in many positions, and, or in many regards, at least with the Paul coming in um, and strengthening the, the club in, in offensively mainly. But the main issue has been the defense, that paired with injuries, the fact that Oblak is really out of shape, or really out of form at least, um, and, you know, that Hermoso and other players are simply not carrying their weight in the defense. Uh, they've managed to lose, what is it now, four games in the last month, maybe? So, you know, that's definitely far from, uh, you know, champion's form. But uh, I think, you know, having a coach like Simeone, you're eventually going to be able to revert that situation a little bit. Might be a bit, might be, it might be a case of too little, too late. But uh, I think they have the resources to kind of, like, you know, muster a little rally and put a bit more fight into the league. But, yeah, I think it's... It's been a complicated season. It doesn't look like there's going to be something significant changing within the squad uh, in the transfer market, I mean. So definitely they're going to have to figure it out one way or another. But uh, yeah, I agree with that. It's definitely concerning how you know, irregular and how you know, wobbly it's been for them. Yeah, every time Atleti have a bit of a dip, I always think, is this the end of Simeone? Has he has he come to the end of the road with them finally? And then, like last season, they won the title. So yeah, yeah I'd, I'd expect them to, to bounce back. He is, of course, the longest serving coach in La Liga. Uh, let's touch on the relegation battle now because 19th place Cadiz changed their coach this week. Alvaro Severa was the second longest serving coach in the league behind Simeone, uh, but he's now gone and Sergio Gonzalez has been appointed to uh, replace him. Was it, time, was it the right time for a change for Cadiz, Manu? Not easy to say, to be honest. I mean, I think that at some point the teams that they are playing at relegation, they they need this moment that they let's say they shake the team. Um, um, we we have we have seen already many times that this coach changing they had changed completely the season in in, in many another example. But in the case of Cardiff, especially having a team like uh, it has been completely sh- shaped around Cervera's way of football. Actually, the Sergio style is is quite similar. I don't know how it's going to affect. The thing is, uh, the city was uh, was loving uh, Cervera. Cervera was loved by 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 the by the squad. Uh, if you see the image after after Cadi decided to to fire him and and his farewell, uh, you can see that Sergio is going to have like a very 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 big uh, shadow. And let's see how how he's able to fight against that because I don't know. Cervera was a coach who took the team in the third division in Spain. They just put it in in La Liga. Uh, was able to keep the category last season. Won. A, he was able to win against Real Madrid in, in away. Draw against Barcelona twice. I think he has done many, many, many good things for Cadiz. And let's see, let's see. To be honest, I don't think so. It's a. It, it was like the right decision in my opinion. But yeah, you never know. Yeah, I also read that the appointment of uh, of Sergio Gonzalez hasn't been very popular with the fans because he's not associated with a very attractive style of football. Is that right, Danny? Is he kind of the Spanish Sam Allardyce? <laughs> you can, yeah, you can probably say that one way or another. <laughs> um, I, I fully agree with what he's saying as well. Uh, Cervera did cast, cast a big shadow in Cadiz, and um, I think it's going to be tough for anybody, yet Sergio Gonzalez, be it whoever you, you appoint, uh, to fill those shoes. Um, especially because he's also a very charismatic person. He achieved interesting, you know, milestones for a team like Gadis, who hadn't been first division regularly that often recently. 
Um, but having said that, yeah, he's a, a bit more conservative in the way he believes in or he understands football. He's a lot more about the structure of the team, about how the team is, you know, fielded the sort of um, defensive mechanisms and how they can respond offensively from the defense. So it's definitely like a, a bit of a, tr- a different train of thought in that regard. Um, but having said that, he has the experience. He kind of did the, ex- uh, he went through something similar with Valladolid. Uh, was it last season, the season before that? I remember he had players like Pedro Porro or Sergio Guardiola who weren't really used to their full potential during that little stint of, of Gonzalez and Valladolid. Valladolid ended up going down to second division. Uh, you can't forget that. So definitely mm-hmm. there's a bit of that also in the mind of the Cadiz fan that, you know, uh, yeah, this guy has experience in this sort of battle, this sort of, uh, of, of scenario, if you will. But uh, it's not always the best, is it? To you know, experience is experience. Don't get me don't get me wrong. It's yeah. good. But if experience is losing, then uh, yeah, is it that positive? I'm not yeah. sure though. So there is a lot to juggle there and a lot to think about. Sergio at this at the time and place right now. But uh, I don't know. I guess the, the only transfer you can give anybody right now is we'll see. But yeah, there's a lot yeah. of intensity in what fans are expecting from him. Yeah, and they've got a problem because Levante are still bottom of the table, but last weekend they beat Mallorca 2-0 to finally end their run of 27 matches without a win, 273 days I believe it was. Uh, Manny, why have they struggled so much um, and do you think this could maybe be a turning point for them? Mm, I hope so, I hope so because it's a team that they really like a lot and the main thing for me was uh, Levante was built by by Paco Lopez who was the coach the, the three se- uh, the, the, for the last three seasons in a really off- off- offensive way. So at the moment that they started to not be so effective in front of the goal, especially players like Roger or, or Morales, they have been always struggling in defense in, with Paco Lopez. And now even if Paco Lopez is out and they have been changing the coach, I think that Levante is not able to find a better coach than Paco Lopez. But let's see, right now they are with, with Alessio Lirci, which, is, which came and it was not really, let us say, loved by the fans. But the other day they were able to to get an important win uh, with Soldado scoring a, a scoring a goal. Also Morales, even they have like the Frutos, who is a, an incredible player, or or even Campaña, who who has been linked with with teams like like Sevilla recent recent years, and I think that he played also in in in, in England. But but I mean. To be honest, the reference of the previous match, I don't think so. They could be like I wouldn't consider it like like a turning point, as you say, because if you see the match, Levante was really lucky. Uh, Aitor uh, stopped a penalty. They scored the goal in the last minute. They were like also like uh, not concede goal to the to the opposition that it was like mm, to Mallorca. It was like uh, let's say let's say not clear enough. But let's see, let's see. In my opinion, they have like quality and front in order to to win in more match. They are worthier teams than than Levante this season in in La Liga. So if players like Morales and Roger and the Frutos they are able to connect and Campaña is able to keep three, four, five, six, seven performance in a good shape, I think that at the end you know you win two, three matches in a row and you are already out of the relegation positions. Yeah, I read a nice article by Alex Brotherton for the Liga Lowdown who described Levante as the most entertaining worst side in Liga history. Would you would you say that's about right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could say so because I told you it was a team built by Paco Lopez in order to be offensive. I remember matches against Barcelona finish 5-4, 4-3 because they know that they have not, not enough quality in defense. Actually, something that it's really weird because Levant, the best Levante this century was especially with Jim, for example, with, I don't, I don't know if you remember, Aruna Cone, Caicedo, Bafemi Martins. Mm. They used it to be Levantes with a very good defense and then one super fast striker in front and they were 
it used to win like matches 1-0, uh, 2-1, and they play in Europe. But in the last three, four years with Paco Lopez, they changed completely the way of, of playing football, being offensive, trying to score more goals in order because they knew that they were going to concede some of them. But, you know, uh, actually in front of the goal, the coach is not able to score. You need like the players <laughs> actually do it. And yeah, in the last year, Morales has uh, decreased his numbers, also Roger Martí. And now, let's see, let's see. I think that it's important to win again after, you know, you just say almost 300 days with no yeah. winning. But, but yeah, the last match against Mallorca, they were able to win, but it was like a kind of coin. It, it could, they could lose easily also the match. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the European Tour podcast. I've been Dan Burke, and a big thank you to all my guests for their insight this week, and to you for listening at home or wherever you are. I will be back again next week to take you on another guided tour of the biggest storylines in European football. But until then, if you would like to contact any of our podcasts with a question or a query, the email address to do so is podcast at onefootball.com. I never-